right, Mark. Thanks for joining the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Good to see you again. Good to see you. So in the meantime, I've met our mutual friend, Greg Foss, and right. uh, we had a great time over in uh, Amsterdam at the Bitcoin conference, which was my first. It was really cool. It's so yeah. it was so approachable. Like it was, there was virtually nobody there, and everybody. I mean, uh, Jeff Booth, who I adore, a nice chat mm-hmm. with him, and and the Prince of Serbia, and so just a great crowd. Um, so for our listeners here, Mark, I want you to try to put yourself in the headspace you were in prior to learning so much about crypto and Bitcoin, right? Because our clients are coming at this from a perspective of, you know, they're really busy, they're entrepreneurs, and they see these news flashes and narratives, and it's really hard to get to the bottom of it. So what I tried to do with Greg was say, let's get really basic about Bitcoin. What are the merits of it? What's your view of it? Here's a guy who's managed risk for three years. Let's talk. So from your perspective, we're going to do this beautiful sort of other side of the coin, which is to say crypto, which is a very different asset class. And so I want you to tell you are the crypto capitalist, just so everybody knows. I want you to do your background. But after that, tell us, you know, what do you think about crypto? What do you think about crypto versus Bitcoin? And um, where are we in this sort of entrepreneurial tech cycle and i know those are big broad terms but i'm just setting it so you can talk directly to to our audience so maybe background first mark or wherever you want to start i gotta preface something and you might want to even edit this out so i'm like i'm like don't edit much go i'm like way more of a bitcoin maxi now than i was to the point where i'm actually rebranding the letter the bitcoin capitalist I love it though. I, I was okay. actually going to struggle with with. So here, let's say this: there's Bitcoin and there's everything else, and I don't say that disparagingly. There's Bitcoin; yeah. it's very unique, and then there's crypto, and there's by the way, every other incorporated private business is in that same category. They're run by people, subject to their rules. They're not decentralized. That doesn't make them bad. It just makes them different. So yeah, go ahead. Right. And so the way I the way I look at it internally or like in my own mental model is like and I come up from the tech background. Right. So Bitcoin is the operating system and everything else are applications on the operating system. Right. So Bitcoin is TCP IP, let's say not even an operating system. It's a protocol. And like Ethereum is Windows. I mean, that's how I'm looking at this sort of thing. And so. Granted, there's going to be crypto projects that are the equivalent of Oracle and uh, and Windows, and like you're going to have these huge monster success stories in crypto that are companies that are operating systems unto themselves that are payment protocols, but they're all. Um, they're all sort of, you have to treat them as on their own merits as companies unto themselves or projects unto themselves. Whereas Bitcoin is like that complete shift in approach, that regime change in the architecture of money itself that changes everything and makes all that other stuff possible. And so um, owning Bitcoin for me, and my preferred way to own it is to earn it. And I've been doing that through my business since 2013. Um, that's just me saving. 
that's just my capital. That's just me saving uh, wealth. Whereas anything I do um, on Ethereum or, you know, we're involved with Ethereum name service and, and looking at all these other things like IPFS and, and other projects, decentralized VPNs and stuff like that. Those are all projects. Those are all programs. They're software and they're, they're revolutionary if they're using a blockchain or even if they're using a crypto token or tokenizing itself. So it's all really new stuff. Um, and some of it is going to be runaway success. And but like anything, it's like you know you 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 invest your clients' money into com- publicly traded companies. There's a lot of crap in there, and you got to sift through all that garbage. A lot of publicly traded companies are 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 terrible, and so you have to sift through all that, and you have to find the good projects and the good companies. So I just thought of this as you were speaking. Um, your analogy to the internet, people make that analogy a lot. That's fair, but you couldn't buy the internet. <laughs> Here, you can buy Bitcoin. Yeah, is that yeah. A fair difference. Yeah, I suppose that is a bit of a difference. I mean, in, in the old days, buying the internet would basically be, <clears throat> you know, setting up infrastructure on it to claim you're part of the internet. I suppose. I mean, but it's not. I mean, that that is because Bitcoin is a monetary technology. Right. So when gold started being used as money, then people who were sort of ahead of the curve then were accumulating gold or or trading their their whatever was being used before that for gold. Not that it happened in such a dramatic and, and fast timeline as as things move today. So, yeah, you're literally um, because also Bitcoin was created as a reaction to a failing monetary system. Right. So it really is sort of like moving from one boat to another boat because one of the ships is sinking, right? The fiat monetary system and the other one's a lifeboat that's gonna, you know, get you away from that system as it as it kind of breaks apart. And and so um, <laughs> let's go over that ground again because only in the last year after reading Safedean's book do I understand what you're saying. So I'm putting myself in the shoes of my clients and friends who haven't had the, you know, opportunity to get to the end of the book and to immerse themselves in this conversation. So when you say things like the fiat systems breaking it down, it sounds, you know, it sounds apocalyptic and it's like heresy. So it's easy to ignore. Yeah. So just build on it and let's let's make this point. Greg made the point, but let's you make the point too. What does it mean? That this monetary fiat system is going to break that because it's sure been working for a hundred years. Well, but look at look at the look at the graph of the purchasing power over the hundred years, though, right? So that's that's yeah. So if you, I mean, you've everyone's probably seen the famous dollar bill graph that shows that since the the creation of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. 1913, uh, the U.S. dollar has lost something like. 98% of its purchasing power. Now, but how do I process that in my daily life? Because I don't feel as I go from store to store and take my income, I don't feel like I've lost purchasing power. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? Okay. So that's part of the part of the issue is that 
many people think that inflation is a natural process, like erosion and, you know, the tides. They just think, well, that's just what happens. Like, just like prices just go up over time. But if you look at that famous graph, all right, of what happened over the last 100 years and look at what happened for the 150 or 125 years before that, you don't see that same decline. So for the whole like call it this, you know, that second wave of the industrial revolution when there was no income tax and there was like a lot less government interference and money actually held its purchasing power. Sometimes it even went up in purchasing power. There was deflationary periods through that time. And it's considered one of the most prosperous eras in human history. Now, 1913 comes in, central banking comes in, everyone goes off the gold standard to fight World War I, they never really go back on it, and everybody's money starts declining in value over time, and everyone thinks it's just perfectly natural, and I call that the treadmill economy. So what happens today when you're, when you're putting a down payment on a house or you're taking out a loan to buy a capital asset? You are always calculating the debt service versus the rate of inflation versus the rate of return, right? And, and that's like a calculation that we think is as natural as sunrise and sunset, but it's not. Because normally, if, you're if your currency is holding its purchasing power, you don't have to calculate real interest rates. They're just interest rates, right? Because the currency is, is solid. Mm -hmm. And so your cost of capital and your, your return on investment, you don't have to compare it to you don't have to run on that treadmill of like, how fast is my currency losing its purchasing power? Okay, so it used to happen at a benign rate. Policymakers had these inflation targets and, you know, everybody thought like 2% was the magic number, but really that's just, I mean, I can go on a rant about that's institutionalized theft, but the reality, you know, in practical terms, people didn't seem to squawk too much when inflation was 2% because uh, people thought they could just run on the treadmill a little faster than 2% and it feels like they're getting ahead. Then you get to those periods in history where inflation really takes off, right? And so we're in one of those periods now where it's higher than it's been in 40, 50 years and, we, and, and, and it's still relatively benign compared to prior episodes and you see the chaos that it's causing in the labor market and in just in the grocery store and just like rippling through the economy of like, oh, now, now my purchasing power is dropping like 10% a, a year. And that's the official rate. In reality, it's probably 15, 17, maybe even higher. And that's just the inflation side of it. <clears throat> what happened in the last year or maybe the last couple of years is there's been this other component added to it, which is the weaponization of the financial system. And so as a small business owner, I'm always, you know, I've been looking at things like cancel culture for the last 10 years, watching it accelerate, watching how people think that if they disagree with you, they have the right to take your business offline or destroy your, your ability to earn an income. And that used to be just sort of like private people you know, trying to go out and make trouble for people they didn't like. But then it became institutionalized, right? Last year, the Canadian government seized your bank account if you made a legal political donation to a cause that they disagreed with, all right? After that, the United States government seized the foreign asset or the foreign reserves of two sovereign nations. It doesn't matter that, you know, one of those nations run by the Taliban. The point is, right. 
right? Everyone's calculus changes when it's like, oh, right. wait a minute. Do you mean that if somebody doesn't like me, they can they can arbitrarily seize my wealth and my capital base and my savings? Uh, well, that changes things enormously. And so, um, you know, the small business owner in me is always feels like we're under siege from all sides, from big business, from governments, from, you know, everybody. So it's like, okay, where can I um, accumulate some wealth or some capital where no one can attack me, either on a purchasing power basis or on a, a capital control basis or a capital flight basis? Um, and, I, you know, I always come back to Bitcoin. I mean, people talk about gold. I was just listening to a podcast, Alistair McCloyd from Gold Money on Wealthion, talking about this exact same issue, the weaponization of the dollar. And he kept going to gold, and I like I like gold, and I'm in that I've been invested in gold for 30 years, but um, I can't press a button and move all my gold to another location in the world. I can't just get out of an area with my skin intact and get to another country and then just enter my secret keys and be replenished with all my gold. I can't do that. I don't have that same mobility. So. Um, I see a value in things like gold, but I, I always have them complemented by a, a digital bearer asset of which Bitcoin and maybe something like Monero are the only ones really right now. Yeah. All right. So you covered a ton of ground there. Um, let's go back to institutionalized facts. And, mm -hmm. and so the way I've characterized it in my own brain is... Well, actually, from a value proposition of our business, we say there's two things that will, well, there's the, the, the thing that destroys wealth is taxation, mm -hmm. but there's two kinds of taxation. There's a direct taxation, which we're all very aware of, 53.53% yeah. of our income. But this other one is more insidious, and it's an indirect taxation. Every time the government wants to fund some things, some projects, which are generally speaking, designed to attract votes so they can remain in power. And I mean, it doesn't matter which uh, party we're talking about. They turn the printing press on and they increase the money supply and then do the project. Yeah, and that is a form of taxation. So yes, it is. talk about that, please, or put it in your own words, where for a very long time, the money supply and the inflation rate, the true inflation rate has been north of 5%. And over 10 years, that'll get you to about what 30% of your value left over. And that's what's happening. So can yeah, you talk about that. So it's, you know, to your point, it's like, if we can expand the money supply by let's say 5% to create a project that we think is going to last, give us a 10 year runway in office, but then we just take it back from the population at 2% a year, right? That okay. we get 20% back, we we devalue that debt by 20%. We've got this big pork barrel project that has a 10-year gave us 10 years in office. And uh, you know, what is it? So that's 20%. And 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 you only you only expanded the money supply by five percent to get it. And it's like, well, everyone wins, right? It's even like almost the carbon tax. They say it's revenue neutral, so no one should complain about paying it, which is I mean, maybe that's 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 a bad. It's not a it's not an apples to apples example, but you know, it's it's this this free lunch mentality. But under the hood, there's this calculation that as long as we can keep 
devaluing the money supply at a rate that exceeds you know what we're going to take like if it exceeds over the lifetime of our projects what we're going to take out each time to create the money supply for that project then we're going to win in the long run and and then there's these extraordinary times like under covid where the world printed 37 trillion dollars of m2 money in like one year and in those times it's like well the alternative is the entire system is going to go off the rails like it'll be the end of civilization so we'll just deal with the fallout of that down the road and um now we see exactly where that's gotten us because the policymakers the central banks are in this strange netherworld where they're trying to raise rates because they know when inflation gets north of four or five percent the rabble doesn't like it the peasants get restless they start to notice that it's harder to feed their family and gas up their car and make their rent and mortgage payments when when inflation is north of call it four or five six percent so you got to do something to keep the pitch the pitchforks and torches off the streets right so you have to start to raise interest rates and they say well we got to do demand destruction but you know demand destruction is your job right like you gotta we gotta create unemployment we gotta we gotta induce a recession um but you can't really induce a recession because recessions now are cataclysmic there was a time when recessions were just kind of like this natural cycle of like wringing out the excess liquidity out of the system and you could kind of let a recession run it go for six months eight months a year kind of take all the excess out of the system and kind of reground everything and they could go for another cycle but that's not the case anymore because everyone that's the other part of all this that we haven't talked about yet is the artificial suppression of interest rates the cost of capital right so you're you're expanding the money supply you're printing all this money you've got close to zero interest rates for 10 years so everyone you're you're stupid not to lever up practically so everyone's levering up and levering up and then um so now you're 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 painted into this corner where you have to raise interest rates otherwise inflation's going to go up too hard but if you raise interest rates you're going to blow up the debt you're going to puncture the debt bubble and if the debt bubble implodes then your monetary base caves in on itself because we're using rehypothecated debt for money so you're in this you know like an escher painting or a mobius strip right where you have this three-way thing of like you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this if you put it all in the other direction where the common denominator is an expanding money supply well then it all works you know until the inflation element of it gets too hot. But if you try to turn it counterclockwise, it just causes chaos. And that's what we're seeing right now. And it's really just the early innings. Like the recession that the interest rate cycle from last year, 2022, baked in hasn't even officially started yet, really. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so let's go back and say, let, let's contrast the years since the fed and then covid and and the way i would phrase it and tell me if you agree or disagree the covid and the and the outrageous printing of money or the exceptional amount of money printed it's just a special case of what's been going on for a hundred years yeah so it's not just that covid and a problem and a fix that 
the best thing COVID's doing is uh, uncovering this conversation where we're now looking at this printing of money saying, wait a second, that's a problem. So absent COVID, we were losing five to 7% of our purchasing power every year because that was the true expansion of the money supply. Yeah. Then we have COVID and we have $37 trillion. And who knows what that's going to do? And six and a half percent isn't the final answer on that one. Right. So yeah. am I characterizing that right? And yeah, well, it's exactly that. It's it's what happened in COVID was an acceleration event. Right. I always say that COVID pulled 20 years of creeping, you know, monetary malfeasance, creeping authoritarianism, right? Creeping this, creeping that, pulled 20 years of it forward into 18 months, right? Um, you're probably like, you're the same age as me, like era. You remember the New York Dolls album, Too Much, Too Soon? Uh, I'm 57, and I don't remember the New York Dolls album. But oh, okay. Well, they had a they had a record called "Too Much, Too Soon," and that's been my mantra for yeah. the COVID era. Right? Too much stimulation in too short of a time. And so, in a sense, it was a good thing because it woke a lot of people up to like, oh wait, this is the logical. This is what you get. Like if inflation, if inflation is targeted at 2% isn't more of everything good better so why not target 10% inflation why not why aren't we targeting 50% inflation well you see that you know inflation is something you want to push as much as you can without people noticing and once people notice it it's no longer any good right and so <laughs> sorry about that it it, it was it was a a compression it was pulling it from the pulling all these effects that would have taken you know like the boiling frog it would have taken 20 years to boil the frog but now the frog got charred in 18 months and everyone sees this charred frog like curled up in the frying pan right now all right so let's talk about do you think there are ways to here we are um not complaining but observing these negative forces on wealth can we turn it around and use them to our advantage? And I want you to talk about two groups of people. One group of people is the folks, and it's the majority of people who make some normal wage or, or income. Let's just say, say somebody makes a hundred grand in, in North America. Mm -hmm. um, that person does not have a gigantic stock portfolio or a cottage or other capital assets that are scarce and get inflated when the printing presses are on. That's what happens when there's free money and printing presses on. My value of my big house and my cottage go up, and my stock portfolio goes up. So I'm okay, says yes. the other group of people. The guy making a hundred has a gigantic tax burden, and then every time he turns around or she turns around, prices are going up five and seven percent. So that guy, very difficult for, for, for that person to, to exploit this, what we're now going to talk about. But I just do want to observe that these governmental policies in this fiat system are very, very hard on that group of people, which they're sort of virtue signaling as, oh, this is the people we're out to protect. So let's just demark those two groups of people. Now, the folks that have the opportunity to exploit these forces, 
what what do you say about that uh well so i mean it's it's actually the people who have resources and wealth i mean it's not just like your assets go up but you know in a hyperinflation or in a high inflationary environment um you're you really are in 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 uh, wealth protection mode so it's not just like oh all my assets are going up because they're being chiseled away by inflation and stock markets don't necessarily correlate with inflation anyway right like they have a hard time in inflation and then you get things like especially with woke governments all over the world you're going to have like wealth taxes and and things like that so it's no picnic for both groups of people right so because the the um the working class people that you're talking about and even like uh the affluent like middle management who are making 100 200 a year um they have a hard time of it with cost of living and then the people who have assets who are deemed let's say wealthy they're demonized for causing all the problems so it's like well let's make them pay for everything the only people truly exempt in a case like this are like the ultra all like the 0.1% of the 1%, the ultra wealthy and the policymakers who either have a publicly guaranteed income or they're just flying around on a private jet that somebody else is paying for, taxpayers or something to go to climate conferences, right? So I'd say the the the, the two camps underneath that sort of capstone class that that sort of sets all these policies, they have similar problems. They have more in common then they then they have different for the you know the working class or the working affluent with not a lot of savings not a lot of wealth my mantra has always been um if you don't own a business start a business right and if you own a business start taking bitcoin at that business and so um, and i always go there first instead of well you should just be buying bitcoin and i think you should be buying bitcoin um any amount i think greg foss might have used the term get off zero when he was on your show right so like uh going back to that um alistair mccloyd podcast on wealthy on he was telling a story about the weimar hyperinflation right and in, in the 1920s and i had a great grandfather who got wiped out in that but he said you know there are stories documented stories of like foreign students going to university in Berlin and they were buying up streets of houses with their allowance that their parents were sending them from America right he said like with 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 five ounces of gold you could buy like a six-bedroom manor in one of the best areas of Berlin so um I, I'm not saying we're going hyperinflationary although I sometimes think I don't know what the alternative is but so to to working class people without a lot of um with a lot of savings or capital assets or wealth i would say get off zero right start a dollar cost average on bitcoin even if it's going to the corner store with 5 or 10 dollars once a week and just and make sure you self custody it make sure you know just stick it on the bitcoin atm and put it in your wallet and just do that every week right and mm -hmm. and you're going to be in a different bucket than 90% of the population if we're right about any of this. And then for the people who 
you know, the other group of people who, uh, let's say, your business owners, your investors, you're your, your sort of living off, you make your living from capital and from assets, not from wages. I'd say, you know, you probably own businesses, you probably have investments in businesses, just start earning Bitcoin through those businesses and keeping them on the balance sheet. And so for, for that second group, it's a balance sheet game. And for the first group, it's just, it's kind of a savings game, and which is also a balance sheet, but it's, it's just very similar approaches, just at different scales. But I think both groups get put into that, you know, do you want to be a survivor or a statistic, right? When all this plays out, I want to be one of the survivors. And if I'm working class, I want to be one of the survivors. And if, if things really, um, get unhinged, then, Hey, you know what, if I can buy it, uh, a rental condo with Bitcoin, with the Bitcoin that I've stashed, if things really get crazy, then then that can make a really material difference in my life, you know, down the road. So, okay, so that's exploiting the technology advantage of Bitcoin is, is what that's doing. What yeah. about the other side of it? Would you agree with the idea that if the fiat system is, to use great words, a Ponzi scheme, why not borrow a ton of it and buy something that's going to work? So borrow soft, borrow fiat, and buy hard, right? Buy Bitcoin or buy, a, buy whatever scarce asset you want to buy. Do you agree with that proposition? Well, um, have you ever heard of Harold Stins? Stinny? No. Stins? Well, he was, uh, again, German Weimar Republic. He was... Uh, he was... He was already from a affluent family. He was the son of a sort of like low-level industrialist. And he sort of saw, had probably a similar conversation to the one you and I are having right now. And he said, the, the mark is going to hyperinflate. So he levered up. He inherited his father's empire. He levered up. He was buying ships and coal mines and industrial. Like he, he did exactly that. And then as the legend goes, he then like at the height of the hyperinflation or whatever, he sold one asset and liquidated all the debt, right? Now, I wrote him up in my newsletter and a reader from Germany emailed me later and said that um, there was a, a magazine article with one of his sons who said that, that Steins died bankrupt after the inflation. So he rocked the hyperinflation, but he mishandled coming out of the hyperinflation. But, you know, you make, and I've been thinking about this too, and um, I haven't done so, but I've done to a, a, a lesser a lesser extent. Like my main business, we do web hosting, domain names, that kind of thing, and we do acquisitions. So I, I'm, I used to like just write a check to buy a company kind of thing. And I'm like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? I'm going to borrow the money, buy the company, use the cash flow from the company to liquidate the debt. And so I can do that. And, I, and if you're levering up to buy cash flow producing assets, it's probably pretty safe. Where I think, where, where I would get a little nervous is levering up to buy like static assets that don't produce cash flow, like buy a cottage buying Bitcoin, even Bitcoin, we've seen how fast Bitcoin can go down. Like long-term, it's up and to the right. There's never been anything like it, 
right? It's yeah. never, never in the history of any asset have we seen something go from zero to even where it is now. Like it's just unprecedented. But you see, if you borrowed, if you levered up to buy Bitcoin at $50,000, you're probably not feeling too smart right now, right? Um, even a cottage, like, you know, I mean, I was looking at a cottage last summer and I thought, ah, you know, I could lever up to do it because cottage prices were just going crazy. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to just take a step back. I'm really glad I did because with the interest rates went up so fast, the cottage prices are coming down really fast. And it's like, okay, that only works. I think what you're talking about only really works if you're levering up to buy like a self-liquidating capital asset, something that's producing cash flow that you can use to liquidate the asset. So even if that value of that asset is going down in market terms, like let's say you buy a rental condo, but the, the tenant's stable, so they're paying the rent. Even if the condo goes down in value, you can still pay off the mortgage using the rent you're in a you're in a safer place but to just lever up and buy something to sit on given what's happened in the last year you see you know when the market swings it swings hard and um i mean that the whole crypto meltdown came out of that right yeah right, right. it was a bit, so let, it was a bit more bsy but yeah 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 but there's no there's there's we've we've seen that Anybody in the capital markets has seen that whole movie before. Like there yeah. is nothing new in any of that. Maybe speed and size, but I don't even know about that. Let's talk about because uh, I know everybody's going to have it on their minds. What um, what what do you do with price thoughts about Bitcoin in the future? You set up into the right. I think that's a beautiful way to manage your own affairs because you don't have to get too particular about it. But yeah, uh, you know, Greg quoted the fidelity price target of some. I don't know what that number was, a billion or something, but what what is your thoughts on where it goes? You know, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I'm I'm thinking on the next cycle, you know, we're 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 like a year and a half away from the halving, a little less, right? And the next halving's next May. Um six digits, I figure, is baked in the cake. Um, we could even hit six digits before the halving. Does Bitcoin ever get to seven digits? I think it does. So actually, here's the way I look at this. Um, I, I picture like this little gizmo box. I actually had a cartoon drawn up of it that I call like the great reset, you know, like not the Klaus Schwab great reset, just the monetary regime change that we're going through right oh, now. Good. You gotta get a new name. Yeah. 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 And on, right. and on the one side, you got these big balloons, right? And the big balloon is like one's like sovereign bonds or bonds. And it's like $300 trillion, depending on what you put in there. Right. And then the other one, the other one is like M2 money supply. And that's like, you know, in US dollars, it's like what it's, I don't know, $30 trillion now. And then over here, you got these two little dinky balloons coming out and one's labeled gold and it's 10 trillion, like 5 trillion of it investable. And the other one is like Bitcoin. And it's like just this little tiny little speck that's like less than a trillion dollars, 300 million right now, 300 billion, I should say. 
And whatever's going on in this contraption, right? Interest rates, hyperinflation, political instability, weaponization of the dollar, the end of Bretton Woods, all of that. This is this big gearbox just mashing around. It's sucking out of this side and it's blowing into this side, right? And so I just think if 1% of the global bond market moves into Bitcoin, right? It puts Bitcoin at like a million and a half a coin. Wow maybe higher, right? And then I think you're going to hear this 1% mantra because you hear even well-respected uh, investors that have, you know, pedigrees and names saying, oh, you know, allocating 1% to Bitcoin makes sense. And even the new Basel requirements or rules have said uh, banks can go up to 2% of their tier one capital base can be in Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. So I think you're going to see this mantra of, because right now Bitcoin is an is a is a never expiring call on optionality. Right. It's just it never expires. You get this option. If it goes to a billion dollars, it goes to a billion dollars. If it goes to zero and you only put one percent in, who cares? Right. So. Yeah, and you hear Greg say a lot, it's the the most asymmetric trade he's ever seen in his life, right? And it still is at these levels, right? So because, yeah, you look at it and go, oh my God, it's at sixteen or $19,000 and it, I didn't get in when it was like 50 cents, I, I missed it. No, don't look at those nominal prices. Look at the size of the balloon over here, this $300 trillion of dead money walking, and look at how big this balloon is over here, $300 billion, right? And it's all going to flow from there into this side, right? Gold's going to go up. Bitcoin's going to go up. Agriculture's going to, like, it's all going to, it's all going over here and it's all coming out of there. And that's what I look at, right? Yeah. And I'll say, okay, the move is over when the sovereign bond market is like, $20 trillion, not $300 trillion in today's dollars, right? That, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm making those numbers up. But my point is, is I'll think that it's run its course when when there's like a lot more parity between those two asset classes. Right. And do you foresee a strong existential reaction from the current central governments that have a monopoly over money or do we transition here somehow peacefully i think i think long term it's just peaceful transition um i think i think this is just kind of the way the world is going but my my mantra has always been i never i never think about it in terms of will governments allow bitcoin i think about it in terms of which governments will survive bitcoin that's how i think about it um, the so I I I have this this word I worship called incentives, right? Yeah. So you look at the incentives, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to trust central bank printed currency. I'm not going to trust a central bank digital currency. I don't mm -hmm. trust the governments not to take my money. I don't trust the banks not to bail me in. I don't like, and it's not just me. Like I'm an insignificant speck in the world, but a fiduciary who's sitting on a trillion dollars of client funds is going to say, I'm not putting that in a CBDC. Are you high? Like, you know, that's not happening. And, and, and Apple is going to go, you want us to put our treasury in this? I don't think so. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone who's got skin in the game wants to keep the skin on their back. And they're just, so that's the incentives. And so governments are going to say, well, you're not allowed to do this. And it's like, okay, how about I just put a trillion dollars of my money behind your opponent who says we are going to do this, right? right. Um, that's why I actually say, I thank God for big money. Like you hear a lot of people say, oh, big money, big corporations. It's like, no, I, 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 I'm glad that these huge pools of capital exist because they have this, that skin in the game, that incentive structure that, and, and often without the, without the sort of like dynamics of political theater to cloud their vision, they can say, look, this is all great. You can go out there at the podium and you can say this to the rabble and the peasants and you can make them feel good, but let's get real here, right? This is not going into a central bank digital currency. This is not going over here. And and so I just think the world is going to go in this direction. I used to think, I used to never think Bitcoin was ever going to become a tier one asset or a global reserve currency. I always thought in terms of, uh, a German word called Notgeld, which was emergency money, right? Which which came out during hyperinflations. And every hyperinflation has a Notgeld, right? In Zimbabwe, it was prepaid phone cards and gas cards, right? In Germany, different cities printed their own money. And I thought Bitcoin was that kind of a reaction. It was emergency money for a global hyperinflation, high inflation monetary regime change. But I've since changed because of once the once governments started seizing foreign reserves, once governments started seizing bank accounts, I thought, okay, this is game over. Now this has to happen because if Bitcoin didn't exist, we would have to invent it right now, but it does exist. So now I think it may not never become the world global reserve currency, but it's going to be part of that. You know, Basel's already all but designated it a tier one asset. And it's going to be part of that. All right, we're going to create this basket of whatever this is, and it's going to maybe have a basket of fiat currencies. It's going to have some oil. It's going to have this. It's going to have gold, and it's going to have like one percent Bitcoin. Do you think that was very good? Thank you. Do you think we wake up one morning in the next couple of years and there's some melt up of Bitcoin? The headline is. So and so seriously material country just went all in on Bitcoin, you know, or whatever headline it's going to be. Some sovereign fund. I mean, it's only three hundred billion dollars. Somebody can buy the whole asset class. Not true because you drive the price up. But yeah. there is there are fortunes. There are there are whatever monarchies to be made here. Do you think that something like that's going to happen? Well, I mean, in the last cycle, we had that kind of tempo going. Except, you know, it was like El Salvador was the one country and then Tesla and then um, um, Paul Tudor Jones, right? Like you had that same sort of thing. And I think that's just going to continue. And it's already continuing now. Like even during a down cycle, you have this kind of adaptation. So I don't know if it's going to be like we wake up one morning and it's a, a sea change unless it's like the United States or something like that. But I think it's just this continual melt up until like 10 years out, a bunch of people look around and go, oh my God, like hyper Bitcoinization happened. Like mm-hmm. at some point in the last couple of years, like now everything is, now it's here. 
Yeah, right. And and then then the feeling, the, the human reaction to that is, I, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the most decision certainty. Yeah. Um, I said, I tweeted that. Yeah, Peter Schiff. Oh, I called this five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you just did it, but the, tell me more about, so, so your transition into this maximalist uh, uh, thinking has been in the last 12 months. So say yeah. more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I used to think, I used to love it all, right? It's like, you know, Bitcoin was the first and it will always, you know, it's sort of almost incarnated in perfection. I mean, I know it's been created, it's been, you know, it's gone through upgrades and there's a core dev team that's continually improving it. But, you know, it it was, it came out, it's been solid, it's great, but it set off this revolution. And I liked the whole revolution. Viva la revolution, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, all these different crypto projects. I was just like, yeah, these are all great. Um, and I still think that, like, I still love a lot of these different crypto projects, but then I started evaluating each one more on its own merits. I didn't just fall in love with it because it was crypto. I'd be like, okay, is there a reason to fall in love with it? And then I found as I started looking at it or as events unfolded, there are some reasons to fall out of love with it. Like I've fallen out of love with Ethereum. I used to love mm -hmm. Ethereum and now I don't love Ethereum anymore. Why? Well, you got a top one or two reasons for that? The move to proof of stake was a wrong-headed solution to a non-existent problem. So, okay. and it and it shows how how centralized Ethereum is. Ethereum is okay. basically Vitalik. What Vitalik wants, Vitalik gets, and he's kind of living in the clouds. Can you hang on for one sec? This could yeah, be sure. yeah. He says he'll be here in twenty minutes. So. Perfect. We're almost done. Okay. So, um, uh, okay. So you were talking about Ethereum falling out of that group for you. So keep going. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when you listen to Vitalik, obviously an incredibly intelligent person, brain power galore. But when you listen to his ideas about, I mean, they're very idealistic and and kind of indicative of someone who's like, People at our age, you've been through a few cycles. You've been around the block a few times, right? You, you kind of realize that um, um, there's nothing new under the sun, even though there is. Do you know what I mean? It's like you sort of you sort of like realize you see a few cycles come and go. Whereas, you know, they talk about, well, we get to write our own rules of physics. Okay, yeah, maybe you get to write your own rules of physics in the metaverse, but we don't live in a metaverse and we never will live in a metaverse. We live in the real world and we have to deal with how things work in the real world. And so there's there's this lack of centralization. There's this this creeping wokeness in Ethereum. And and um, I still support Ethereum name service because I come from the naming infrastructure. And I, I so, you know, my my main company, ZDNS, supports it. But, you know, I really um, kind of lost enthusiasm for Ethereum. And then uh, some of these other, pro like the exchanges, I always knew most of them were, you know, you never leave your money in the exchanges, but I'm really disappointed at how Badly, some of them were outright frauds. Um, I, I never really had an opinion on on SBF. Um, 
but now it's like, okay, he was, he was a criminal uh, up here in Canada. Voyager digital was publicly traded. I thought they've got to be like, they've got to be taking care of the shop rationally. I never had them in the crypto capitalist portfolio, but thank God. Cause I didn't like, I didn't like that they were losing money as an exchange. You know, they were doing the growth yeah. thing. I'm like, I'm like, it's a bull market, all time highs. You should be printing money, not losing it. So we never put it in the portfolio, thank God. But like to just watch a regulated, publicly traded company just make these like really um, almost rookie errors in in, mm -hmm. in management was bad. And so, and then a lot of these crypto projects, I'm like. They're just, they are a lot of them, like the yield farms and stuff like that. It's like, sorry, what is the point of your project? Well, it's lending and staking and yield farming. Lending and staking, yield farming, what? Oh, this other token over here or this, you know, and it's just like, it's all very circular. And I'm like, okay, give me a project that's got a reason for existing, right? Like things like helium, you know, it's got a reason to exist, whether it's been, functionally successful or not, you can debate that, but it's got a reason to exist, right? Um, so that's why like now I'm, I guess I'm much more discerning. I've got to pick every project um, on its own merits. Understand that like the stock market, most of these things are garbage, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, right. And then just, you know, turn over a lot of rocks and kiss a lot of frogs. Okay, so you're keeping, so talk to people about how they access you and sign up for your letter. And is the letter going to continue to have a crypto uh, portfolio or are you, how are you going to handle that? Well, so we were always, um, so we started as like focused on like macro, like, you know, what's going on in the world financially. And it was publicly traded Bitcoin and crypto companies. So yes, the focus is still on, you know, the portfolio. We actually come from a value investor um, point of view, not momentum. So we don't try to trade and pick intermediate tops and bottoms. Keep it focused, 10 names and a few ETFs. Mm -hmm. uh, the odd options play, right? Okay. And uh, yeah, we do, we do have exposure to crypto. We still have exposure to Ethereum through that portfolio. And then we're starting to look at individual crypto projects and Bitcoin projects. Although at the moment, it's like the portfolio is buy Bitcoin, right? <laughs> like just, <laughs> yes. yeah, that's the portfolio. Um, right. There's another one, uh, MXC was something I started, like, that's like a helium network, like uh, creating a, a uh, LoRaWAN network. So that was something that I recommended last summer. Um, or earlier this year, I should say. Oh, it's yeah, 2022. So, um, you just go to the com and just click on subscribe. It's usually like two PDF, you know, kind of old school. I write two PDFs a month, a mid month portfolio update, and then sort of the month end sort of macro overview. Right. Um, I can put on a deal for red jacket customers if you want. Uh, yeah, sure. Backslash red jacket. Yeah, yeah. So go, uh, yeah, cryptocapitalist.com um, slash red jacket. And I'll, I'll just put it all on for 50% off. So oh, there you go. Yeah. Excellent. Anything that's uh, that's great, Mark. Thank you for that. Anyone at the end, or we've really covered a lot of ground in a really succinct way. So I appreciate your your time and your thoughts. 
Yeah, I just, you know, it's interesting watching the price action, although, you know, the price action is is not the be all and the end all of all this, but it's just, I've been telling my readers for the last couple of months, I said, I don't think we're done. I don't think this winter is over. I don't right. think this bear market is over. And I said, I want everyone to psychologically prepare for the demise of Tether, right? I think Tether is going to, I think Tether could be a fraud. The people who were saying it for all this time may be right. And I can tell you why if you want. And I think when Tether goes, there's another leg down that could bring Bitcoin under 10,000. And were that to happen, you know, I got a bunch of like USDC sitting on the sidelines. And if Bitcoin comes under 10,000, it all goes in. Like I just push everything onto the table and buy Bitcoin. <laughs> now, Having said that, and I've never bought Bitcoin, really, like I've always just earned it with the business, right? But um, it, I was noticing last month, I was putting the issue together, and I realized the last two halving bull markets started 15 months before the halving. Oh, and I'm like, that's like right now. Like if that, if that, if the pattern holds then Bitcoin is is bottoming like now. Now, I know, I mean, it's only been, you know, a few weeks that we're into the year, but we're up 17% on the year, um, but everything is up. So this is the thing I want to get more clarity on. We're still in an environment where it's all one trade, right? Either everything goes up or everything goes down. Right. And I'm waiting. And I think when when this recession hits and when the inflation hits and when things start to really enter their own dynamics, that's when we're going to start to see decouplings and we're going to start to see things move on their own dynamics. And it's not going to be all one trade anymore. And my theory is that Bitcoin and thus the Bitcoin stocks, there's going to be a sector leadership in the stock market. And I think crypto stocks, the good ones, are going to be among the leaders this time, right? The unicorns, the days of the unicorns are over, you know, profitless unicorns and the days of like energy, gold, silver, and these Bitcoin stocks and some of these crypto stocks, I think will be the new leaders. Um, I think within the crypto space, you get this decoupling where it's not all one trade anymore. Like right now, you'll go to CoinGecko and everything is up, right? Well, I think right. that will end at some point. I will hope that that will end at some point because you see a lot of shit coins. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? You see a lot of- no, no problem. <laughs> see a lot of garbage coins going up just because everything else is going up. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I think at some point that changes too. Um, but right now it's all one trade. So it's really hard to say is Bitcoin bottoming or not, but you know, I'm telling people, you know, brace yourself. Cause I still think, I still think Tether is going to go. I think Binance may cave in. I don't know. Beautiful. All right, great. Thank you, Mark. All right, thanks, Dave. Good to see you again. All right, Jeff. Thanks very much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or maybe you have something to add to the conversation, we're at redjacket.ca. And on the website, you'll see the phrase relationships matter. We really believe that and encourage you to start one with us. Thanks again for listening.